Today's sermon passage is Matthew 5:17 through 48. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil." You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." Amen. You may be seated. As you take your seat, let's pray together. Our great God, this morning we gather around your word. We do so in the name of Jesus. We do so believing that your word is true, believing 
that your grace is real, believing that there is hope for broken people like us because of Jesus. And this morning, oh God, we cry out and we ask you to change who we are. Every single one of us needs to be transformed by your power, by your spirit, and through your gospel. So Lord, perhaps some of us need to be brought to repentance and faith for the first time. Lord, would you work in this way in this gathering today? Lord, others of us simply need to be transformed to look more like your son, and we know our inability, so we ask for your help. Lord, my prayer over this congregation today is that you would truly stir a longing to be like Christ. You would truly stir a longing to be godly, to be biblical, to be one who enjoys the fruits of your kingdom, that you would work in us, oh God. Please, we pray in Jesus' name for his glory. Friends, it's so good to be with you this morning and to have you with us. If you would, please take your Bibles, turn to the book of Matthew chapter 5, where Sam just read for us. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, there's one in the chairs um, there in front of you. And after hearing Sam read that passage, who's really excited about the sermon? (laughs) Got one. Thank you, brother. We channel your joy here this morning. I'm going to choose to believe that everyone watching online raised their hand. Uh, as well. Um, That was a little bit funny, just a little bit. Okay, anyway, um, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a prolonged section of Matthew where Jesus is teaching his disciples, particularly teaching his disciples what it looks like to follow him, what it looks like to walk with him, what it looks like to be children of the kingdom. So to put this Sermon on the Mount into our, our, our normal Christian vernacular, we might say that Jesus is showing what discipleship looks like. We might say that Jesus, if we're a little tick more sophisticated, that Jesus is showing us what sanctification looks like. Jesus is saying, for you who follow me, this is what it's going to look like belonging to me. And so the question that Jesus is answering in this section that we're looking at today, beginning in verse 17 through the end of chapter 5, really the question is this. What is the work of the law in the kingdom of heaven? Now, they would have asked it in a much more scoffing way. You're setting aside the law of Moses, aren't you? To which Jesus said, no. Jesus might have thought, hypothetically, when I'm done, you'll wish all that I said was keep the law of Moses. Because what Jesus does in this passage is he says, the ethic of my kingdom, the desires of my followers is much deeper than the surface and much broader than the letter of the law. 
deeper than the surface, broader than the letter of the law, because the spirit and the intent of the law is to be wholly devoted unto God and love him and love his word and love his ways above all things. And Jesus is going to show a very probing view of what it looks like to be wholly transformed by him. So I would just say it this bluntly. The Christ who saves us intends to wholly and radically transform all of who we are. And this passage is to give a beginning roadmap toward that transformation. So it begins with some questions about the law and how that, what that looks like in the kingdom. And then picking up in verse 21, he gives six examples of what he's talking about. Um, six very tangible examples of what he's talking about. So what we're going to see is that sin runs far deeper than we are comfortable admitting, and Christ will meet us all the way in the depths to redeem the totality of who we are. We don't have to be afraid of what this passage reveals about us if we are in Christ. But we can get a view of how deep his transformation goes. So the first point, if you want to take notes this morning, is fulfill. Now, um, the way this sermon is laid out for us by Matthew is there's not back and forth, there's not Q&A, it's Jesus teaching. But Jesus, in verses 17 through 20, is answering this question, what about the law? What about the law? And this is what he says. I did not come to abolish the law, but to complete it. I didn't come to minimize the desires of God for his people, but I came to complete them. I didn't come to tear down the law, but I came to build a people whose love for God and obedience to God is not a surface level checklist, but goes all the way to the core of who the person is. So this is what Jesus is doing in these four verses. What role does the law of Moses that which is given to us in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. What role does the law of Moses play for a follower of Christ in the kingdom of heaven? The first point he says here is, I came to complete or fulfill the law. So the first question is that Jesus imposes is, did you come to abolish or to fulfill? Abolish? No. Fulfill? Yes. Now notice in both of these scenarios, abolish would be something changes. Fulfill? Something changes. I didn't come to preserve your Jewish status quo so you could feel superior in your checklist obedience to God. I came to change things. But I came to move things in the direction that God always intended them to go. So Jesus says first 
in verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Meaning I didn't come to tear them down. I didn't come to demean them. I came, I did not come to set them aside. Jesus is declaring I have not come to change God's desires for the people of God in the world. I didn't come to change that. I didn't come to change the expectations of God. I didn't come to change the morality of God. I didn't come to redefine the holiness of God. I did not come to abolish or tear down or demean the law and what it reveals about God and his desires for his people. Okay? Well, then what did you do? He says it clearly. The second half of verse 17. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. To fulfill them. Now, I think we Christians are a little trite in how we interpret fulfill. We think about it like this. Like, typically when Christians talk about fulfill, we think about it like this. Like, there's a, a secret hidden promise buried back in history. And then Jesus says, aha, that was me. Aha, that was me. Aha, that was me. Oh, that's so good. I didn't see that over there, but it's Jesus. That's not what he means. Fulfills a word of completion, a word of arriving at its destination, a word of accomplishing all that was intended to accomplish. So what Jesus is saying when he says, I came to fulfill the law, what he's saying is, I came to ensure that the law of Moses totally fulfills its purpose. The purpose of the law was to shape the people of God as they live for the glory of God in this world. So when Jesus said, I came to complete the law, what he's saying is, I came to be the perfect obedience to God and to his ways for his people and to transform his people to walk in my ways. Jesus says, I'm the completion of the law and that through me, you get the obedience. Through me, you get the righteousness. Through me, you walk in the ways of God. I have come to fulfill the law. I think this is what the Apostle Paul meant in Romans chapter 10 verse 4 when he wrote, for Christ is the end, completion, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What Paul is saying is Christ is the completion of what the law desire. He is the holy Israel. He is the holy people of God. And in him, a new people, wholly devoted to God, will be built. 
I'm the completion of the law. Now, if I stopped right there, we could end up in some crazy places, right? We could just like take our Bibles, rip out the whole Old Testament, cut them up, burn them, move on. But Jesus is going to say, no, we're not going to go there. Because second, he says, the law of Moses is still a guide for the people of God. Keep reading verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is saying, iota and dot intentionally honing in on the minute, no small detail will pass away until all is fulfilled. And then Jesus goes even further. Verse 19, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You see what he's saying? He's saying, teachers, don't diminish the ethical and moral and teachings of the law. Don't diminish all that God requires. Don't teach others to diminish it, but teach others to follow the Lord totally and fully. Relaxes and teaches, I mean, relaxes and teaches others to relax, called least. Does them and teaches others to do them, called great. It is the will of God that the people of God obey God and love God and walk in the ways of God. It's the will of God that the people of God are transformed. We're changed. We're not left to be selfish, rebellious sinners, but we're made into God's people. So Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish, but I came to fulfill. And the law is still a guide for God's people to know what God desires. Now, there's an interesting side biblical theological conversation that we could have about what of the law is fulfilled in Christ and therefore is complete. But that's not for today. What I want you to take from today is the desires of the Lord revealed in the Scripture are intended to shape redeemed people, to to carry out our transformation. So he came to fulfill. It's still a guide. But third, the law is not a checklist. The law is not a checklist. Look at verse 20. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that cuts a little bit, right? Now think about this. The scribes and the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders of the Jewish people. They're the ones who who major in the law and do law really well. They they love to sit around and talk about law. They love to sit around and talk about what we can do and what we cannot do. And how many degrees of separation you need from those who don't do law, lest you become unclean and not a law 
doer. Basically, I think Jesus is saying when it comes to checklist people, the scribes and the Pharisees are about as good as it gets. If the law of God is do these things and live, do these things and enter the kingdom, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're the people you want on your fantasy law-keeping team. Pick them. But Jesus says even the best box checkers that Israel has ever known are not worthy of the kingdom. Because the kingdom is for those who know their unworthiness, repent of their unworthiness, and run to Jesus, the perfect law keeper, the end of law keeping as righteousness, and cling to him. So Jesus says, look, the law was never a checklist for entering the kingdom. God, Moses didn't give the law in Egypt and say, do the things and then leave with me. They were delivered. They were redeemed. They were set apart. They were brought out. And then God gave them the law to say, walk with me in these ways. The law was never a checklist for entering the kingdom. And Jesus says, look, because the law was never a checklist for entering the kingdom, I tell you, checklist keeping is not the way to earn God's love. Checklist keeping is not the way to be called sons and daughters of God. Checklist keeping is not the way to be called members of the kingdom. Let me just get good and southern and revivalistic. Checklist keeping is not the way to be saved or to go to heaven when you die. It's not. So if you're here today exploring the faith, exploring the church, you just got guilted and bludgeoned into being here. If somebody said, I tell you what, if Tennessee's 5-0, and you've got to come to church with me. And you thought for certain you would never be here. (laughs) Welcome. In God's providence, you're here. And this is what I want you to hear today. We're going to talk about some very clear things that God wants his people to do. And it's going to convict and it's going to cut. But the answer to the conviction and the answer to the cutting is not, I need to do better. The answer is, I need Jesus. And if I have Jesus, then I have the Spirit. And the Spirit will do better in me. But our invitation is come to Jesus. I got to go, man. It's 9.50. And I start sabbatical before next Sunday. All right. Second point. Deeper than the surface. Deeper than the surface. How many of you right now are like, Pastor, I could really use some tangible examples? Good. Thanks for your honesty. Jesus knew that. He's going to give us six very tangible examples. So what verses 21 through 48 show us are six very tangible examples of what Jesus is talking about. And this is how the format is going to go. You have heard it said, quoting from the law, but I say to you, okay? Now, if Jesus had come to abolish the law, he would say, 
you've heard it said, but let me tell you why that's wrong, right? If Jesus had come to change nothing about the religious living of the Israelites, he would have said, you have heard it said, period. But what Jesus does is rather than minimizing, he maximizes. He says, hey, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and, and, and really what Jesus is doing here is he's saying two things. Number one, no one walks away from the holiness of God unscathed and unconvicted. But number two, the transformation of Jesus goes all the way down into the depths of all of that. So here's the six examples. I'm going to go frustratingly quick, and I know it, but these six examples are important enough that Jesus gives them, and they're all worthy of deeper study, okay? They're all worthy of deeper study. Number one, in verses 21 through 26, you have heard it. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That's Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Jesus Great, don't kill. All in favor of not killing. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. That got real convicting real quick, didn't it? Jesus is saying, if you're angry toward a brother or sister, if you're insulting them, if you're calling them a fool, then at the root, you're guilty of violating the commandment. Your anger is just as condemning as murder. Jesus says then, so seek reconciliation before bringing your offering. Come to terms quickly. So Jesus says, hey, you've heard it said, don't murder. Not only do I affirm that, but I'm going to push it deeper. And I'm going to say that anger at another, that deep ravaging anger that would, would cause us to say, you fool or you idiot. That anger at its core is the same as committing murder. Uh-oh, a whole lot more of us are guilty now, aren't we? We're all rethinking that ride in the car here this morning, aren't we? If you work at a church, you get to come really early in separate cars, and that's at least one thing you don't have to repent of, is fighting in the car on the way to church. Second, lust. Verse 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Adultery meaning sexual activity outside of the bond of marriage, particularly as a married person. Okay. But I say to you 
So here's the, here's the we're going to go deeper. We're going to broaden the swath of culpability. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Hmm. No one's going to chuckle at that one, but that one cuts deep. Ladies, I don't think that Jesus is saying this is only true of men. He just teaches all of these things from the perspective of a man. Jesus goes on, he says, look, if your right eye causes you to sin, I'd rather you get rid of your eye. If your left hand causes you to, excuse me, your right hand causes you to sin, I'd encourage you to go ahead and get rid of your right hand. For it's far better to get rid of the temptation than it is for the whole body to perish. So Jesus says, in my kingdom, lustful intent is just as serious as adultery. Third, divorce, verses 31 and 32. Now, interestingly, Jesus says far less about this one than all the rest, and it's the one that we would all have more questions about. Matthew 29, Jesus is coming back to marriage and divorce, and so we will come back to marriage and divorce. I said 29, Matthew 19. Sorry, there's not a Matthew 29. That would be the made-up version. It was also said, quoting from Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Basically, if you're going to divorce your wife, be nice about it. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus is saying there are limited grounds for breaking the bond of marriage. Here he mentions sexual immorality. Second, he says, be very cautious about breaking the bonds of marriage, lest we be found committing adultery. Tons of practical questions. What I want to say at this point is this. Let's admit that Jesus has the right to, that Jesus, who is God, who created all things and created marriage, has the right to tell us what is an appropriate usage of marriage and an inappropriate usage of marriage. And let's be willing to submit to what we find in the scripture as we take into account the totality of the scripture. If you're like, I need to read more, flip on over to Matthew chapter 19 when this sermon is over. Commenting on this, these two verses, Eugene Peterson says, Ultimately, Jesus is saying, quit pretending to be righteous just because you are legal. Quit pretending that you're righteous just because what you've done is legal. Fourth, oaths. Again, you have heard it said, quoting from Leviticus 19.12, you shall not Swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. 
Basically, if you're going to swear, do it. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all. By heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or by the hair on your head. Why? Because all those things belong to God. And ultimately, you're taking an oath in the name of the Lord. And don't do it. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. And if you don't take an oath, then you're not swearing falsely. And this isn't in the Bible, but young folks, I would like to add the word bet to oaths. And John Robus agrees. <laughs> Fifth, retaliation. You have heard that it was said, Exodus 21, 14, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So Jesus is saying, you've heard it was said, if you take my eye, I'll take yours. If you take my tooth, I'll take yours. If you take my horse, I'll take yours. Jesus is saying as a member of the kingdom, don't retaliate at all. Just let it be. Offer more and forgive. But I don't like that one. I think if we take this seriously, what Jesus is saying is as people of the kingdom, we can no longer say, but you made me do it. You didn't make me do anything. I retaliated. I did. But I like you made me do it. Jesus has the authority to shape how his people live in his kingdom. Sixth, relation to enemies. Quoting from Leviticus 19, verse 18, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Here's what Jesus is saying. Everybody loves those who love them, but people transformed by the king even love those who hate them. What if I don't feel like loving them? Pray for them. Pray for them. That's what Jesus says. Love them. Pray for them. Christians, there's a divine injunction here from Jesus to the disciples 
to love our enemies. All right, so what do we do with this as we wind down? Number one, we commit as followers of Jesus that these six teachings of Jesus are good and right and we let them shape how we think about these realities, even if it hurts. Number two, on these six things, we do take the, the totality of the witness of Scripture into account, particularly all the other things that Jesus says and all the other things within the New Testament that shapes and clarifies what Jesus is saying here. Number three, we recognize that these six teachings and what Jesus has said about the law call for a greater transformation in Christ. What I'm saying is we recognize that the vision of what Jesus has for a transformed me and a transformed us is far deeper than the six you have heard it said and goes all the way into the but I say to use. And there's a whole lot more mess down there in the but I say to use, right? That's the powerful reality that Jesus has come to shape and change and transform. And let's believe that he's able. Number four. Don't use these six, you have heard it said, but I say to you, to level the playing field of sin. Don't, don't use that to, to level the playing field of sin. Let me, let me tell you what I mean by that. A lot of times I'll run into people who say, well, if I've lusted after someone, I'm already guilty of adultery, so I might as well. You see the connection there? We're leveling the playing field of sin. So when Jesus says, I'm going to broaden the implications of a law, he's not saying that it's the same to think about it and do it. Or if you thought about it, you might as well do it. You know, I'm mad at you, so I'm killing you. Nobody thinks that, right? So let's not level the playing field of sin. Let's hold on to a distinction between I thought about it and I acted on it. If I thought about it, Jesus says, I need to repent. But to think and to repent is better than to think and to act and feel no remorse. You guys with me here? So let's not level the playing field of sin. Fifth. This teaching that Jesus is giving here elevates what it means when we say that Jesus was sinless. It 
elevates it, right? So we hear this and you're like, Jesus, but you're making it harder. Jesus, you're making it harder. Jesus, you're making it harder. Jesus, you're making it harder. And he knows that he has to fulfill and complete all of that. So when Hebrews 4 says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What the author of Hebrews is saying is, yeah, he didn't murder, but he wasn't angry in his heart either. He didn't commit adultery, but he wasn't guilty of that lustful intent either. Like, like this passage is radically over, not overwhelming, but expanding what it means when we say that Jesus lived without sin. Now, what does the author of Hebrews say we do with that? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So this, this broad understanding of what righteousness looks like, Jesus completed that. And if Jesus completed that, then Jesus is able to help us in all those spaces. He's able to give mercy and grace to us in all of those places. And when the author of Hebrews says, he can sympathize with our weakness because he was tempted as we were, he means in all those deep and broad spaces that are being laid out here in Matthew chapter 5. Friends, I want us to be a people who walk with Christ seeking deep abiding transformation that glorifies him in all things. And there are six examples of what that looks like for us right here. They're real and they're true and they're valid and there's nothing in the scripture that says set those aside. But rather, if we're to walk with Christ and follow him, these six realities are what it looks like to walk with Christ and follow him. So I end with this. Something we said when we finished chapter four Christians are people who repent freely and often. Repent means to turn away from our sin and rebellion. Believe means to cling to Jesus as our righteousness. If you're far from God, if you're not a follower of Christ, what the scripture would say is repent and believe. And I would invite you today, repent and believe. If you are a follower of Christ, you entered the kingdom, the family, by repenting and believing, and we go forward with him by repenting and believing and repenting and believing and repenting and believing. And if you think you're too holy to need to repent, I just destroyed your worldview. Actually, Jesus did. So we learned that repenting and believing is how we move forward with Christ as he reshapes who we are. So our Father and our God, we pray now that you would work mightily and powerfully in your ways. Would you transform who we are and make us like you? 
Anyone who's overwhelmed with the weight of guilt at this moment, we pray that Christ's blood would be healing and saving and comforting and peaceful. Make us like you, O Lord. Make us like you, we pray in Jesus' name.